Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Midtown Schuyler Bookstore. My name is Alex Brubaker. Thank you for joining us in Harrisburg this evening. We're very happy to have you here. Um, it's been a number of weeks since I've been on stage. I missed the past couple of events, so I'm um, extra happy to be back. Uh, I do have an announcement to make. Uh, if you have not yet heard, we have just announced the dates and authors for the Harrisburg Book Festival, uh, which is gonna take place this fall from October 3rd to the 6th. Um, please, please, please check out our website. It's really easy, hbgbookfest.com, and the Facebook event is now live as well. Not only is uh, Reese returning uh, to, the, to Harrisburg to participate, but we've confirmed some really other uh, exciting authors and more are gonna be added throughout the next few weeks. And also, uh, we're gonna have our large annual tent sale. I don't know if anyone remembers that from last year, but it's gonna be across the street from the bookstore. Tens of thousands of books priced at $3 and under. Uh, so again, hbgbookfest.com, uh, October 3rd to the 6th, mark your calendars. Uh, moving on, I have the pleasure of introducing our speakers here this evening. Uh, directly to my left here is Jasmine Chan. Her short fiction has appeared in Tin House and Epic. A former reviews editor for Publishers Weekly, she holds an MFA from Columbia University. Her work has received support from the Elizabeth George Foundation, the Breadloaf Writers Conference, the Wurlitzer Foundation, and elsewhere. Currently living in Philadelphia, she is finishing her first novel, The School for Good Mothers. Further to my left is R.O. Kwan. She is a National Endowment for the Arts Literature Fellow. Her writing is published or forthcoming in the New York Times, New York, The Guardian, Vice, BuzzFeed, Time, Noon, Electric Literature, Playboy, and elsewhere. Born in South Korea, she has lived most of her life in the United States. Of course, we are here this evening for the paperback release of her debut novel, The Incendiaries. It is being translated into five language, languages, and it was named the best book of the year by over 40 publications. Publications. If you're here tonight, you've likely heard all the praise, reviews, and all the buzz uh, this novel has accumulated over the past year, but if not, I'm here to share a few of my favorite blurbs. Uh, the Los Angeles Times writes, certain literary circles have been buzzing about R.O. Kwan's The Incendiaries for months, and this slim, intense novel is the rare book that lives up to its pre-publication hype. Southern Living writes that if you only read one book this summer, make it this complex and searing debut, and Celeste Ng says of the novel, in dazzlingly acrobatic prose, Aro Kwan explores the lines between faith and fanaticism, passion and violence, the rational and the unknowable. Without further ado, let's give it up for Jasmine Chan and Aro Kwan. Hi, can everyone hear me okay? Okay, great. Um, hello, thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited to be here. Um, and thank you to the bookstore. And thank you to Alex, um, thank you to Jasmine. I'm, this is like the most beautiful bookstore. Is this just, this is just like your local bookstore and you come here all the time? Oh my God, I'm so envious. Look at this place, like look at these couches. Look at that mural. I'm, I'm just like, I'm like dazzled. I, I, I mean, I've been to like a lot of bookstores and I love a lot of bookstores, but this is out of control. Um, anyway, I'm very envious, um, but thank you for being here. I, um, so I am going to talk about the Incendiaries. Um, it's my first novel, but before I talk about it, or before I read from it, and I'll read very briefly from it, um, I'll, I want to tell you just a little bit about, about it. So what I usually tell people it's about is I say that it's about a woman who gets involved with a group of fundamentalist Christians. The group turns out to be a cult um, with ties to North Korea, and they end up bombing abortion clinics, healthcare clinics, in the name of faith. Um, so I worked on this book for 10 years, pretty much every day for 10 years, um, and, uh, and that, which means that for 10 years, I attended a lot of parties and dinner parties, 
And most harrowingly, Thanksgivings, at which people would ask what I do, and I would say I write, I'm working on a novel. Um, and you know, naturally enough, they would ask what it's about, and I would give them pretty much the same spiel that I just gave y'all. Um, and then over those 10 years, by far the most common follow-up question I got was, is your novel autobiographical? Which, um, which I never really knew what to do with, because I didn't, I, I feel like I've like held up that question trying to, like looking at what that means. Like are people asking me, have I myself been involved in a violent extremist cult? Have I myself blown up a bunch of buildings? Um, and the short answer is no. I, I haven't blown up any buildings just yet. Um, but there is a longer possible answer about, about uh, uh, that covers sort of what, what like obsessions and losses of my own went into this book. Um, and so what and so what happened is is that I I grew up very Christian. I grew up so religious that for a long time until I was 17, my entire life plan was to become a pastor or a missionary. Um, and, and then when I was 17, I lost that faith, and it was devastating. Um, in a lot of ways, it was, it was and is the pivotal loss of my life. Um, it's kind of divided my life into a before and after. Um, and it was devastating on, on, on a number of levels. So there was, the, there was a loss of God itself, um, which, was, which was terrible. So terrible that I still have a lot of trouble explaining it. I have a lot of trouble talking about it. Um, it was, I, I lost the God to whom, for whom I had meant to live my life. I had meant to live my life in God's service. Um, so I lost that, and then I also lost um, a lot of community because all my friends and family pretty much at the time were Christian. They ranged from like moderately Christian to just like extremely Christian. That was what was, that was the water I was in. Um, and then there was a strange new sorrow of, and strange new loneliness of, um, for the first time in my life, okay, so as like a bookish introverted teenager, I was like pretty used to feeling like tragically misunderstood by the world at large, right? Like that's sort of the fate of introverted bookish teenagers. Um, but I was used to finding fellowship in books. And for the first time in my life, I couldn't find my experiences. I couldn't find my sorrow reflected in any books. Um, and since then, I've come across more books that grapple with complicated faith, with lost faith, um, but there still aren't very many. There's still there's still rel relatively few books, especially novels that are interested in this. Um, and so I so that was I was lonely on those levels. And then I went off to college um, not long after I lost my faith, and it was on the it was on the East Coast. Um, and at my school, pretty much all my new friends had almost no experience of religion. And so as I started to making friends and getting to know people, like I would tell them, you know, I, I was so religious um, that, I, that I thought I was going to be a pastor. I was really Christian. And all my friends across the board, they just were like very puzzled by this. Like they'd just be like, huh, that's weird. <laughs> and then they'd be like, well, you know, good for you. <laughs> like you're free. You got out of jail. You can drink and have sex with the rest of us. And I was like, well, you know, that's that's true. Like, I can drink, I guess, and and, and like drinking's nice, but um, but it was it it was such a it was a, such a tremendous loss. It was it was such grief, and I don't say this lightly. Um, I'm very close to my family, but I remember thinking that I would rather have lost my parents. I would rather have lost my parents than lost God, because the Christian God, in my understanding of Him, in my in, in what I knew of Him, 
promise to restore all loss. I used to live in a world in which no one I, knew, no one I loved was going to die. I wasn't going to die. There was no death. There was no loss. Um, and it was, it, was, it, was, it was so strange and so disorienting and so painful to have this loss that wasn't even legible. It wasn't even visible to anyone I knew. Um, so I wanted to write about that. I wanted to write about that loss. But I also wanted to write about how wonderful it was to believe, um, how, how joyful it was, because there was that too. And I also, over time, I realized um, I wanted to write a book that could perhaps serve as a kind of imaginative bridge across different parts of the faith spectrum. Because I, I, I was realizing that, that a lot of people only ever experience one part of the, faith, of the faith spectrum. There are a lot of people who know exactly what it's like to believe in, in, in an all-encompassing deity. There are a lot of people who have absolutely no idea. Um, and these experiences can be unfathomable to other people. Um, and so, yeah, I wanted to write a book that could serve as an um, imaginative bridge. I also, um, something that you know, people often ask, how did you keep writing this book for 10 years? Um, what was driving you? And part of what was driving me was, I wanted to write a book for that girl, for that 17-year-old girl, for that 18-year-old girl woman um, who felt just like utterly alone in the world. And I wanted her to know she was never as alone as she felt. Um, okay. All of that said, I'm just going to read the first chapter, and then we're going to, and then we're going to talk. Um, and, it's a, and it's a short chapter. One, will. They'd have gathered on a rooftop in Knoxhurst to watch the explosion. Platt Hall, I think. Eleven floors up. I know his ego, and he'd have picked the tallest point he could. So often, I've imagined how they felt waiting. With six minutes left, the slant light of dusk reddened the high old spires of the college, the level gables of its surrounding town. They poured festive wine into big-bellied glasses. Handshaking, they laughed. She would sit apart from this reveling group, cross-legged on the roof's west ledge. Three minutes to go, two, one. The Phipps building fell. Smoke plumed the breath of God. Silence followed, then the group's shouts of triumph. Wine glasses clashed together, flashing martial light. He sang the first bars of a Cheja psalm. Others soon joined in. Carolyn bells chimed, distant birds blowing white, strewn like dandelion tufts and outsized wish. It must have been then that John Leal came to her side. In his bare feet, he closed his arm around her shoulders. She flinched, looking up at him. I can imagine how he'd have tightened his hold, telling her she'd done well, though before long it would be time to act again, to do a little more. But this is where I start having trouble, Phoebe. Buildings fell. People died. You once told me I hadn't even tried to understand. So here I am, trying. I'll stop there. Thank you so much. Thank you to all of you for coming out. Can you, can you hear me?
Um, you can you can tell that I am the novice on stage, whereas Reese has done so many dozens of events. Um, so thanks to Alex for inviting me to do the, the Q&A tonight. And I just want to say first, congratulations on the amazing success of this book. A, f a friend passed it to me when it was in the galley stage, and so it was incredible to see it literally everywhere last year. Thank you. Um, so, so I know that you've talked a little bit about the inspiration for this novel. I'm curious, which element of the story came first? Oh, that's a great question. Um, let's see. So for the first two years, um, I spent the first two years reworking the, just the first 20 pages of this book over and over and over again, pretty much every day, often for, usually for several hours a day. And then at the end of it, um, I threw it all away. And I restarted with pretty much the same characters, but at the time, so for those first two years, um, the book was essentially, there was just kind of like a, there was a sad, there was like a melancholic woman wandering around by herself, meditating on the nature of an absent god, um, which was exactly as fun and sexy and compelling to read, let alone to write as that sounds. Um, and then around after that, after I threw it all away, I, there was something about, at the time, the woman who falls into the cult, Phoebe, she was the one who both loses and gains faith. And, there, and I realized, like, if I, if I broke apart those experiences, so there's someone who's losing their faith and someone there who's gaining their faith, then immediately there's something that's happening between people. Um, and for me, that's when the book started coming to life. Um, and all of that is, I, I do, I love like solitary, melancholic walking around books. Like Zabald is my jam, Teju Cole is my jam. Like I love those books. Um, but I think that that wasn't what this book wanted to be. And so, yeah, it started with just like a mopey woman. <laughs> and, then, and then it changed. Um, do you think that giving the loss of faith to Will's character is what allowed you to, to write this plot? That's fascinating. Um, you know, there's, there are ways in which, I think I only very recently realized this, um, which is wild given how much time I spent on this book, but some months ago I realized um, because the, the character who takes up the most space in this book, so as you can, as you can tell from what I just said, um, the book was, used to be, it used to be narrated entirely by Phoebe, the woman. But now most of the, I mean, there are three points of view, and Phoebe does have a voice in here, but, um, but the person who takes up by far the most amount of page space is, um, is a man, Will Kendall, um, who has, I gave him, like, the most directly autobiographical elements of this book, um, are his religious experiences. And I, um, I think there was something about giving this part of my life, this part of my life that felt so painful, that still feels so painful, um, that I had so much trouble talking about and, and still have so much tr trouble talking about, um, giving that to a character who is as demographically unlike me as possible, in a lot of ways that let me that let me that freed me up to be more truthful, um, and that's something I love about fiction. Is there's something about that? There's just like a, 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 a thin, a thin curtain of plausible deniability, right? Like you could write like the most autobiographical book. You could write like Nausgaard's like super autobiographical book, but if you call it a novel, like you're still like people could, could be like, is that you? And you could just be like, I made it up, man. Like you never know. You don't know. You don't know. Um, and I think I think that's part of why I made I gave that part to a man. One thing I'm always curious about with anyone writing fiction is how do you decide you're working on a novel rather than a short story? Did you know right um, away that this was going to be a novel? 
Oh, wow. Um, I haven't had that question before. That's so interesting. I think, yeah, I think I knew from the start that, I think I knew that I was going, always going to write a book about this, about, that was centered on faith and the loss of faith and, and then like passionate faith. Um, and in some ways though, everything I write, like short stories, even like the most like seemingly unrelated nonfiction piece, um, it's always about it. It's always about that loss. It's always about that grief. Every there's a line I love from um, from a poet, and uh, I'm suddenly blanking on his name. And he's such a wonderful poet. Anyway, um, it, it, the line is something like, uh, "Your loss has gone through me like thread through a needle. Everything I everything I do is stitched with its color." I'm butchering it, which is awful with poet's words, um, but but that's how I feel pretty much. Like that loss is just it's just such a it pervades my life. It pervades it pervades every day, and so it pervades my work too. Um, I think you've talked a little about about the the dramatic ways the story changed in revision. So this was originally Phoebe's story. Um, mm -hmm. Were there other ways that I mean? It sounds like over ten years, a lot of things would change in revision. What were some of the other dramatic changes that happened over the years? Oh, there are so many dramatic changes. Um, so the book went through like I don't even know, man. It went through like maybe forty drafts, maybe eighty. I genuinely have no idea, and I don't want to know. Um, it's like what I feel as though it's like I don't have kids, but I feel as though it's like it's like a little bit like what people say about childbirth. Um, it's like it's like once you've done it, your body tries to forget what happened so that you can find the energy to like maybe want to do it again. Um, and so there there are ways in which I I've forgotten a lot of what happened intentionally, I think. Um, but some major changes went through. Okay. So it used to be told entirely from Phoebe's point of view, and then it was told entirely from Will, um, the character who I read from that first chapter, from Will's point of view. Um, that was from years two to six, and then it was told from, and then it was told from Will and the cult leader John Leal's point of view, and then it was told from Will, John Leal, and Phoebe's point of view, and then it was all kind of looped back into Will. Um, and there was a whole oh, there was a whole like. 100-page section that was told from Phoebe's father's point of view, and it took place in 1970s South Korea. Um, and I worked on that for a long time, and then I threw it all away. Um, and I realized I, I, I couldn't, I, I'm, I'm a very, um, whenever I'm stuck while I'm writing, a thing that often helps me is to actually try to like forcibly like project myself into a character's body. Like I try to imagine like, what are they think? What are they like feeling? Like how do they like, how does their body feel? How are they, what are they smelling? Um, and I couldn't do that in 1970s South Korea because I didn't know anything about 1970s South Korea. And none of the research I was doing was giving me, was giving me enough um, of those sensory details. Like I didn't know what was playing on the radio. Like I didn't know, I didn't know what things smelled like. Um, I wasn't alive in the 70s. Like all of that was was it was too it was too far away from me to be able to bring it to life. Um, so so yeah, I think I learned that like I, I should never try to write historical fiction. I just I sort of just like learned it the hard way. <laughs> but uh, one technical question: What do you do with all the material that you cut? Do you think you're going to save it and use it for other stories or other projects? Um, in general, no. But I do. I don't like slash and throw away. I just um, I put it into a giant file called Scraps, which to me feels, I, I, I know, I forget which writer it is. Um, one writer throws it into a pile called, into a document called Graveyard, which seems way too depressing, like you're like burying your work. Um, that's, that's too much for me, but Scraps, Scraps feels chill, you know, like it's like it could be Scraps, like they're like just like off to the side, maybe I'll reuse them again, who knows. Um, oh, and I just remember the poet's name, thank God, um, it was W.S. Merwin. 
So in terms of working on the book for a decade, what kept you going during the tough times? Um, there's, there were a number of things. So part of it was um, sheer stubbornness, honestly. You know, at a certain point when you've been working on something long enough, I couldn't quit. Um, I'd been, and I couldn't, I, I, I said I was going to write a novel. I said I was, I was working on a novel, and I had been working on it pretty much every day, um, and I had to see it through. But part of it, too, is that, and, and there were so many moments, um, like so many moments when I would just be like, what am I doing with my life? Like, year five, year seven, I was like, I could have, I, I, I just had this, like, I had this recurring thought. I was like, I could have been a, I'd have been a great dermatologist. Like, why didn't I become a dermatologist if I were a dermatologist? Like, I'd have my own goddamn health insurance. Like, um, but I love thinking about skincare. Like, it would have been, it would have been a good life, too. Um, so you decided not to become a beauty editor. I didn't become a beauty editor, but, but there was, I, I love the act of writing. Um, writing, I do also find writing to be incredibly difficult. Um, find it incredibly difficult to even sometimes like sit down to the computer. But when I'm deep in it, when I'm deep in a sentence um, and I'm and I'm like utterly absorbed by it, I really do. It's like as close as I can get now to a religious experience, and that I really do lose all sense of myself. I lose all sense of ego, um, and I'm just in the work. And there's nothing like it. Like that feeling is the greatest feeling I know. And it's not. It's not like that. It's not a feeling that's always available. It's not available every day. Even um, sometimes, like weeks, like weeks will go by without it. But when I'm there, um, I lose all sense of time passing. And and that, like that, there, there's nothing better than that. I found that the hardest thing with writing a novel is to answer questions from other people about writing a novel, mm. as in, when is it done? Why is it not done yet? Mm. Did, you, did you have a lot of that? You mentioned Thanksgiving was a little hard. How did you deal with the Asian family questions? Um, Thanksgiving, man. I, okay, so the thing about Thanksgiving is you're seeing family members, um, in a lot of cases, who you haven't really seen for like a solid year, right? And, and they're like people who care about you, so that, I think, complicates matters. Um, I was very, very lucky in, in, in the sense that my family like, was super supportive of my being a writer. Like, they were excited for me. They were like, when I started being a writer, they were like, great, so when do we get to see your book? Well, when's it going to be on the shelves? Will it be out next year? And I was just like, that's, 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 I don't think that's how it works. I'm not that fast of a writer. Um, so, but they maintained that excitement until like year five. And then, and then year five was when the things started getting dicey because um, and then they would they would ask me like they would ask how's the writing going but with trepidation you know like they'd be like how how's the you know like how how's your book going like you could see the anxiety in their eyes as they were and I wanted to wear I wanted I really wanted to just like wear a shirt and the shirt would just say like I don't need to talk about my goddamn novel let's talk about you we can talk about anything else let's talk about the weather um, but and then it got worse around year seven is when they stopped asking me. And what they would do instead is, um, like if I got up from the table to whatever, to like get seconds of cranberry sauce, then they would lean in and very quickly ask my husband, like in, in a very low voice, like, how's Reese? Is she all right? Um, is she, it, like what's going on? And they would, they'd said it as though like, like they couldn't like, as though I were like a dying invalid in the next room who couldn't be addressed directly um, because they were so worried. So there was a lot of that, um, but, but it came from love, you know, it came from, there wasn't, I, I understood what it was, but yeah, years like, years like five to eight and a half were a little rough, just like emotionally. 
So shifting gears, I, so clearly anyone who reads your work knows that um, you're very attuned to the importance of language on the sentence level. Mm. Um, which writers do you read for pleasure and which do you read to learn from? Oh, yeah. Um, God, so many. But let's see. Um, Virginia Woolf is just a standby for me. Um, she gives me so, so, so much. Um, she gives me so much that, and, and, and this will sound wild, but every rare now and then when I've been in just like the depths, um, I've like prayed to Virginia Woolf, even though I don't believe in prayer. I don't believe she's like out there anywhere. I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm like very clear on the fact that she's like super dead. Um, and, and, but, but there's, I think it was just something about like trying to commune with what I love. Um, that, that was always, that's very helpful. And then I like learned that like there are other artists who do this. Um, like uh, the, the, um, the wonderful choreographer Balanchine, um, he always said that he, um, that he, that he prayed to like musicians um, whose work he used and he's, and he was like, and they always help. Um, but so Virginia Woolf is a standby. Toni Morrison has meant a lot to me. She's increasingly, um, she's increasingly meaning a lot to me. Um, she is so, she is so, from the very beginning, if you read some of her nonfiction about how she thought about her fiction, she has been so intentional from the start about who she's writing for and why. Um, and there's a quotation of hers that I love, 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 and this too I should memorize, I shouldn't paraphrase Toni Morrison, but it's something along the lines of, I stood at the, I stood at the border, I stood at the border, I claimed it as central, and I let the rest of the world move over to where I was. Oh my God, I'm like giving myself shivers just like saying that. Um, isn't that good? Isn't that powerful? Can you imagine doing that like when she started writing, which is what, like decades ago, having that kind of strength, like having that kind of certainty, knowing what it was she wanted to do in the world? Um, and yeah, I'm learning a lot from, I want to learn a lot from, from her strength, from her, from her sort of, from her courage. Were there any writers in particular you read um, f as inspiration for this book or as models? Mm, that's an interesting question. As inspiration, definitely. Um, not really for models, um, but for inspiration. So there's a Virginia Woolf book that, um, that I reread um, pretty much every day for like three years while I was reading this book. Um, not front to back, of course. Um, I would just like dip into it at the start of each writing day. I would dip into it and I would read like, like a sentence or sometimes a paragraph or sometimes a few pages. And it would, it would act for me kind of the way, um, you know in acapella groups, how there's somebody who sets the pitch? It was kind of like that for me. Like it would bring, bring me back, it would sort of like gently tug me back into the world of my book. Um, and now you're wondering, of course, which book it is. And this will sound even zanier, um, but I, I cannot tell you, I can't say it because I'm worried that if I say it, like she'll, like the book will stop helping me or she'll stop helping me, you know, because like, because like it's like, it's like, it's, it's dangerous to name the things we love. Um, and so, yeah, but it was a, it was a wolf book and, and it's, and it's like one of her like, well, um, like very loved ones, but yeah. Um, there were, there were a number, of, there were, there were so many writers though. Like I, I know that there are writers who, I know there are fiction writers who don't, read fiction while they write fiction, and that seems wild to me. Um, I mean, I got into this because I, I, loved, I love to read, and I specifically, especially love to read fiction. So, so if I'm not reading, if I'm not reading a lot, that means the writing's not going well. Can I ask what you're reading these days? Yeah, of course. Um, let's see. 
what do I have in my what do I have in my bag? Um, I have a John Berger book, um, Ways of Looking or Ways of Seeing. I forget. It's it's one of the titles along those lines. Um, and it's and I'm reading it partly because for my new novel, which I've already been working on for three years. Um, my new novel, the narrator is a photographer. Um, she turned out to be a photographer, which is extremely unfortunate because I don't know very much about photography. So I am giving myself a gradual education in um, in photography and in the visual arts. Um, I also, a book that's coming out in this, in April? April, um, by Pam Zhang, How Much of These Hills is Gold, is so beautiful, so powerful. Um, it's about Chinese Americans during a fictionalized version of the gold rush. And it's a fascinating book. And it's a, and it's a story that I've never, I realized I'd never really read um, in like full book form before. And of course, Chinese Americans during the gold rush, like, like the ways in which the book grapples with questions of racism, um, it's so powerful. They're like some of the most fascinatingly, weirdly, beautifully grotesque descriptions of a corpse that I've possibly ever read um, in literature. Highly recommend it, but that'll be out in April. <laughs> but actually, let me recommend, let me talk about one more that's actually out now. Um, uh, there's a poetry book by the poet um, Kaveh Akbar that I'm in the middle of reading right now, and, um, and he's wonderful. He's also just like a great reader. If you ever have a chance to read him, he's, he's, um, he's, he's, he's like a transfixing reader. This bookstore also has an amazing poetry selection, so compliments to Alex um, and whoever else decides <laughs> the titles to stock. I'm curious what the past year has been like for you. So you mentioned you've done nearly 100 events for this book. What has it been like to dive back into writing after your book becomes a bestseller and you have to do all this press? And the act of talking about your book is so different from the private act of writing. How do you tune out all the noise? Mm. Tuning out all the noise, that's a great question. Um, the short answer is that for maybe a year and a half, I basically didn't write fiction. Um, it was like I couldn't because I was so, there was so much other stuff to do for this book. Um, I was writing a lot of nonfiction pieces, which is great too. I love writing nonfiction, but um, fiction really is my true love. Um, and, the and fiction comes from the depths in a way that, that nonfiction, even if I'm writing about the most personal things, um, does not. And so, that was a, that was um, that was that was that was very disorienting because I really I, I had been writing fiction pretty much every day um, for so long and to not do that for a year and a half was was very very strange. Um, I did though. I like talked to a lot of writer friends and every writer friend I've talked to said that they basically couldn't work on their basically couldn't work on their fiction while while um, while also doing while also while, while their book is about to come out and after it's and after it's come out um with one exception alexander chi was like i was able to write every day regardless and i was just like god damn it if alex can do it i should be able to do it too um so maybe with the next book i'll be able to who knows so for any writers in the audience could you talk through your path to publication at which point you queried agents at which point your agent submitted the manuscript to publishers. Mm -hmm. um, what advice would you give to aspiring writers? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I have a bunch more follow-up questions after that. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. Who's a, who's a writer in this room? Awesome, yay, yes. Um, okay, so uh, I, let's see. I didn't, start ask, I didn't start looking for an agent until year six, um, and I, I know a lot of people find agents with like part of a book or even just like a short story, but I really didn't want to do that. I wanted to find an agent with the whole book because I wanted 
someone who would respond well to the book itself. I wanted to see how they responded to the book. Um, and the way I found my agent is, I, I mean, I, I, I queried sort of a number, I, I queried several agents, but um, the one I, the one I went with um, was one I just, I emailed her out of the blue and I just said, you know, like I really, really, really love your writers, especially, um, she also represents uh, Marilyn Robinson, who's just like one of my favorite living writers, and Michael Andachi, and just, she represents like a number of some of my favorite writers on earth. And, that, and that's like one of the only pieces of agent advice that I feel comfortable ever giving to other writers um, is, I think it can be really helpful to look for an agent who represents writers you love um, and really love, like not that not not just because like an agent like has a lot of whatever like Booker Prize winners and they're very fancy, like that's nice. Um, but everyone in publishing, I think, is in it for love. Like every bookseller here is in it for love, um, and that and that love can be a shared language um, that that can that can really provide a, a a good working relationship because your agent is. Your agent is such a close person in your life. Like it's like it's like in terms of like people who are important to me in my life, um, in terms of how much they affect my life. It's like my husband, my mother, and then my agent. Um, and so you you want to like really like your agent. Like you want them to be you want them to be sympathetic to your work. Um, so that was year six, and then I edited the book with my agent for two and a half years um, because she wanted she thought that the book should have. Um, fairly massive structural changes. Um, and I, I found that I agreed with her. I would never ever have, um, I would never ever have made the changes if I didn't agree with her, but I found that I wildly agreed with her. And so I made all those changes. And then at the eight and a half year mark, she um, went out with the two publishers. Um, and, and then it sold to my editor, Laura um, Perciseppi at Riverhead. Um, and then we edited it for another year and a half before, um, before it started, before, before I was done with it. So, yeah, super speedy process. So, so it sounds like your advice for aspiring writers would be to have patience. Um, I don't know about patience. I'm a very impatient person, so I don't know that I, can, that I would tell people to be patient. Um, maybe one piece of advice I would have is, well, this is something I never believed when people told me, so it's quite possible you won't believe it either, but maybe you will, and maybe you're wiser than I am. Um, there has been no external affirmation. There has been no um, external good news that has ever begun to, begun to match the joy that comes from like just writing a good sentence, from like being in there and being like, I, from writing a sentence and looking at it and knowing like that, yes, like I said what I meant to say, like this is what I wanted to do. Um, and when, I, when the book sold to my editors, so it was a moment at the eight and a half year mark, it was a moment I've been fantasizing about for like a long time, right? Um, so I got the call from my agent that the book had sold to an editor I knew I respected at a house I knew I respected. Um, and then I hung up and I was genuinely happy for maybe 30 seconds. Um, and I know that because I was staring at one of those digital, um, digital clocks and the minute hand did not change um, before before a whole different kind of anxiety started crashing over me. And the anxiety was like, okay, now what's next? Like, what are the edits going to be? How does one, do, what does one do? Like, how does one get like a book out into the world? What's going to happen? Um, and so in a way though, that, that, that brings me great consolation. I think especially as I'm three years into my new book, um, that means that the best part 
is, is so readily available. The, re the best part is right there. It's, it's already there. Um, it's not like some off there. It's not like out there on the horizon. It's already, it's already, it's already here. Like it's in my laptop, you know? So we have time for one more question. Um, so I'm going to ask you an Asian person question. So, so growing up for me, um, I mean, I'm about to turn 41. So the, mm -hmm. it, growing up, the only model for being a Chinese American novelist was Amy Tan. Mm. And so now these days, I'm surrounded by a lot of Asian American writers, many of whom are my friends. So, so, so now, nowadays, there are people who look like me doing this. Um, who, who did you look up to when you were growing up and wanting to write? Because there weren't that many to choose from. Yeah, that's, this is something I think about. I think about it so much because, um, so my mother was, she, um, I moved from the state, I moved to the States from Korea when I was three. Um, but my mother, strangely enough, was an English major in college. Um, she really particularly loved the English language. Um, and so there were a lot of, my house was full of books. Um, and, but it was full of books by extremely dead white people. Um, and so all my childhood loves were like, and, and I still love them, I still love them so much, I will always reread these people, were um, like Henry James and like the Brontes and like Edith Wharton and Tolstoy, like, like that was my shit, you know, and I still love it. Um, but I didn't read a single person who was Korean, I'm Korean, um, until after college. Um, and I realized, it, it took me a long while to realize this, but what this meant was that I loved an art form. I was desperately obsessed with an art form in which I didn't exist, and in which I couldn't possibly have existed. Um, if I were walking around Edith Wharton's world, in those fictional worlds, I, could, I would never have been allowed into any of those rooms. I would never have been allowed to even really talk to those people. And that, I think that, and that makes me so sad in retrospect. Um, and it means the world to me now that there are so many, I mean, still, I mean, relatively a lot more, but, but I mean, there's still a lot of work that can be done. Um, but one of the first Asian American writers I read, or one of the first um, Korean American writers I read was Alex Chi, um, who's wonderful. And his book, How to Write an Autobiographical Novel, which is his most recent book, is incredible and like such a good book especially like for writers I think it's it's a it's a beautiful book um there was also Susan Choi um was one of the first ones Cheng Wei Lee um yeah well I think we're going to turn things over to the audience now but thank you Reese for answering all of these questions and I'm excited to hear what you guys have to say if you have a question just raise your hand and I'll come around with the, the mic I'm not sure if you're comfortable answering this, but I'm just going to go ahead and put it out there. Can you expand on what happened to you when you were 17 and mm -hmm. you lost your faith? Was there something specific? And what happened? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm very happy to, um, to talk about that. So um, it wasn't, there's a line I give um, to, to Will where he says, it's like what people say about bankruptcy. It happened gradually, then all at once. And that's what it was for me. It was like a, there was like a slow, gradual accumulation of questions that could not be, not even answered. It's not that I needed to be answered. They couldn't even be accommodated within, um, within the belief system that I had at the time. And so it, it felt as though, it almost felt as though like I, I had a door that I, was, that I was holding closed and the questions were mounting and because 
because I was Christian, it felt to me like like evil, like demons and doubts that were coming at me. You know what it felt like? Um, a little like, you know those zombie movies when there's like someone like holding a door, but then like more and more zombies are coming and you're like, oh my God, the door's gonna break and they're gonna get turned into a zombie. They're, they're like definitely doomed. Um, that's what it felt like. And then one day the door broke and, it, and, then, and, then, it, and then it was done. Like I was, I was, I was out of the faith. Um, and there was no like dramatic event. There was no like life event that really made it happen. It was just, you know, it was just like a lot of the, a lot of people who fall out of Christianity, it's for the same reasons. It's like, it was like evolution, you know, dinosaurs, like um, the existence of other faiths that are incompatible with Christianity um, as, as, I, as I understood it. Um, and one thing that did contribute to my loss of faith was, um, as is clear, I was always, as, and as I'm sure a lot of you are, I was always a big reader. I was always a passionate reader. What that means, of course, is that I was spending a great deal of time inhabiting the minds of people who did not believe what I believed. And increasingly, it just became impossible for me to believe that people, that just because somebody didn't believe exactly what I believed, they were going to hell. Um, that didn't seem right to me. And yeah. Other questions? As, uh, as somebody who couldn't be demographically more like Will uh, and who lost his uh, faith at about 17, I really identified with the character mm. until about 80% of the way through, and he's a rapist. Um, could you talk about that part of his character arc? Yeah, um, I'm happy to talk about that. I, I will say in general, um, first of all, thank you for reading the book. Um, and thank you to anyone who's read the book. Um, but I, I know people get like really upset about spoilers. And so if you bring up plot points, if you could bring them up in a more general way, that would be, <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> I personally don't care at all about spoilers. Like I often will like, if I'm watching like, a, so like when I was writing Friday, watching Friday Night Lights, I got so stressed out by the story that I would read all the Wikipedia entries ahead of time and be like, oh my God, is Smash gonna get his football score? Scholarship. He needs to get his football scholarship. Um, but so I don't care about spoilers, but I know a lot of people do. Um, so there's a point when a main character becomes violent and betrays someone he loves deeply. Um, and that was the way I write. I don't, and I know there aren't writers, there are writers who write differently, but I don't feel like a puppet master. Like I feel like someone who is almost more um, like a medium or, or, but that sounds more passive than, than the work it feels like. Or I, or I feel as though I'm like excavating my way toward a book um, and I'm excavating my way toward characters. And I truly want to get to a place where the book feels as though it couldn't possibly have been any other way, where it couldn't possibly have been any other book. Um, and so with this, so when, when, when this main character, when, when one of the characters turns violent and betrays someone, um, when I started realizing that this was possibly what was gonna happen, I was just like, dude, seriously? This is who you are? This is who you've been the whole time? And I was so upset, like I was heartbroken because I do, I do love my characters. Um, my grad school mentor, Michael Cunningham, um, he says something wonderful that I think about all the time. He says, we must, love our, our, we must love our characters as God does and not more. Um, and to me, that I take that to mean that I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't force my characters to do things. I, I, I let them become who they are. Um, and so I wrote a lot of versions of that scene in which, in which the violent act didn't happen. Um, and then I, and then, but it, they just like rang really false. 
And then so I went back and I looked at everything I had, um, everything I'd written about Will, and I, and I realized there were so many ways in which he privileges his own desires, in which he prioritizes what he wants. There's so many ways in which, the ways in which he looks at women, um, the ways in which he even looks at the woman he loves, are, are could lead to violence. Um, and I realized that there there was a a certain scene in there which if you've read you'll know what I'm talking about there's a scene in Beijing that while I was writing it I was extremely puzzled and I was like dude he's um, I I shouldn't give away exactly what he does but it's like a fairly innocuous seeming scene but it's very strange and I was like what are you even doing he's like scaring a girl um, in a a relatively low key way but not really and I was like, and I realized this was all building up to the fact that when uh, that when w- that when this character, when he doesn't get what he wants, and when it's something he desperately wants, he's perhaps going to get it anyway. So that was a long that was a long answer, but thank you. So my question is um, more about the process and kind of bridging that. So I don't think any writer maybe sets out to spend a decade writing a book. Um, but you describe it in really reverent tones, like going into Virginia Woolf almost as a devotional in the morning. Mm. Was it a, a comfort to have that, that framework to you after maybe losing your faith? So in the subject matter of the book, mm. as well as the, the art, that's, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's such a beautiful question. Um, let's see. I mean, I do, if I don't write fiction on a given day, I feel a little dead inside. Um, if I don't write fiction for a week, I feel quite dead inside. Um, and so the act of writing itself, writing every day, means a lot to me. Um, it's, it's, I, I feel as though I, I'm not like doing what I, what I was put on this earth to do if I'm not writing fiction. Um, so there's that. There is also something to, this is also something I only realized over time. Um, while I was writing this book, I was reading and rereading the Bible I was reading like devotional texts, like I was reading a lot of Simone Vale, who's really wonderful, um, a religious thinker. And I was just like, and I realized I was spending nearly as much time with God, with the idea of God, as I would have if I'd stayed religious. Um, And I think perhaps writing this book, um, it was my last way of being with God. And I think there are ways in which I don't think I ever stopped loving God. I don't think I, and I don't, and it, that's part of what grief is, right? Grief is love for an object that has become, for some reason, unavailable. And I think this was my last way of being with this God, who I love, who I love so much. Maybe this is how I'm going to keep being with him, because missing someone, grieving someone, is a way of still having time with someone. Do we have any other questions? Yes. First, just thank you so much for your honesty and your answers. It's wonderful. Thank you. There we go. Uh, thank you so much for your honesty and your answers. It's really wonderful. Oh. Um, and this is a rare privilege to ask someone a question about how you might teach this novel as someone who's planning to teach this oh. for a college course next year. And I'm just curious if there's some advice you might have of ways of approaching or entering the novel with undergraduate students that might be interesting. Um, oh. It's so rare to be able to ask this question of someone who wrote the novel. Oh, my God. Um, yeah. So thank you. Any thoughts you might have about teaching, it would be wonderful. Um. That's such a great question. No one's asked that. And, for, and thank you for teaching it. That's, I feel so honored. Um, let's see. There are a number of interviews I've given. Um, and the paperback 
edition includes one of those interviews. There are a number of like rather extensive interviews that I got to participate in, which, which I feel very fortunate about. Um, and I feel so those could be interesting to students. Um, especially there's one in electric literature, which is the one that's in the paperback. Um, there's another interview with one of my closest friends in Bomb, a literary magazine. Um, and that one too, we really got into a lot of things. There are also, these were actually some of my favorite interviews to do. There were a couple of interviews with religious publications. Um, and so one was Commonwealth, which is a Catholic publication. Um, and there was a podcast that I really loved doing with, um, with the religious journal Image. Um, and I think there was something about, and this really surprised me, and I've been, I've been like very delighted by it. Um, I was a, a like low-key worry I had, but very, but like steady concern I had while I was writing this book was I was really worried that like a, an extremely right-wing Christian group would like ban the group would like ban the book. Um, and well, I mean, I was worried, but then like a friend was like, honestly, I think that would help your sales. And I was like, fair point. That's a really good point. Like maybe I should want this. Um, but it's turned out instead that like. All, Every person, at least every person I've talked to who's, um, or who's emailed me or who's come to a reading and has talked to me, religious people have by and large said that they really appreciate the ways in which the book doesn't laugh at faith. It doesn't sneer at faith at all. Um, it takes faith very seriously. Christians are not a punchline. And Christianity itself is certainly not a punchline. Um, so maybe those conversations would be interesting. Um, there are ways in which um, structurally, Somebody else brought this up, and it's true. Um, although I didn't quite realize it while I was writing it, while I was writing it, um, structurally, there's something that that the book does that Tasia Cole's Open City, um, in a pivotal moment, also does. And so that might be, and 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 just in general, it's it's such a good book. Um, so that might be like a an, a really interesting like compares a juxtaposition would be those books. But yeah, thank you so much. We have time for maybe one more question. Yes. Thank you. Um, so you talked about how um, this cult in the book bombs abortion clinics. Mm -hmm. What was it like to hear about you know, all of this going on in our world today and then writing about it? Yeah. Um, so you know, a, a question that um, often came up would be, you know, because it's about people bombing abortion clinics, um, parts of the book, um, at least are said to take place in North Korea. Um, and people ask, like, how in writing a 10-year book did you write a book that includes topics that are so often on the front, are like front page headlines? Um, and I think the answer to that is like 10, 11 years ago, that was very much in the water too, you know? Um, abortion rights have always been under, under threat. Um, women's rights have always been under threat. Sexual violence is certainly just like a, 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 a thing that's that's been around. You know, it's um, it's it's it was just as around 11, 10 years ago as it is now, and so um, and so yeah, it just I think I think there are so many ways in which my real life concerns get into the fiction that I'm writing, and um, and that and that just feels natural. That feels like that that feels like part that feels like why wouldn't it? Is 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 I think how I feel about it, but yeah. Can we give a round of applause for Reese and Jasmine? Thank you. Uh, huge thanks to, to Reese and Jasmine.
You have been listening to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore Author Reading Podcast. Please make sure to hit the subscribe button to keep up to date on all our newest author talks. After every event, there are limited quantities of signed copies of the featured books. Don't forget to grab your copy today. If you would like more information on Midtown Scholar Bookstore, please visit midtownscholar.com. The Midtown Scholar Bookstore Author Reading Podcast is a free podcast and does not own the rights to any of the readings.